I'm Kate Daniels. We know that we have a huge crisis in our criminal justice system, and my guest David S. Rudolph, a criminal defense and civil rights attorney for more than 40 years, has spent his career fighting abuses of power and corruption within our criminal justice system. He is the author of a new book, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System. David Rudolph, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Well, thank you, Kate, for having me. I appreciate it. I am really grateful because your book, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System, is something that is so critically important. The timing is really ideal in the sense of these are issues that we've been grappling with, but even more so right now. So again, the timing is ideal to have this information. So thank you for writing the book and being with us this morning. Well, th- thank you for uh, for agreeing to hear me talk about it. Well, it is such a, a mind-blowing, I'll use that expression, to what has gone on. And, and just to take one of the simple but really atrocious statistics as to the numbers of people that we know have been unjustly uh, incarcerated over what about at least twenty eight hundred people? Well, and that's and that's really sort of the tip of the proverbial iceberg because the people who have been exonerated were fortunate enough, lucky enough to find lawyers to prosecute their cases. The lawyers were lucky enough to find evidence to support their petitions, uh, and then the lawyers were fortunate enough to find judges who are actually willing to listen to the evidence. And so, uh, you know, jumping through those three hurdles is by no means easy. And so I think it's fair to say that, you know, the 2,800 people who were successful in doing that uh, represent a minority, probably a vast minority of the people who have otherwise meritorious claims of innocence. And no doubt, or at least I've listen to some of these stories where the 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 persons will often have uh, someone pleading their case or advocating for them. So some of those who are still languishing in the prisons could justifiably be in the same situation of being exonerated, but uh, they just don't have those resources as well. Uh, that's exactly right. and and indeed, it's fortunate. Uh, that over the past uh, decade or two, a number of law schools, and, and this includes law schools in, uh, in Seattle and, and in Washington State, have formed uh, innocence projects. And it's really those innocence projects, I think, that have accounted for the bulk of the exonerations uh, over the last uh, couple of decades. But for those law school innocence projects, I think the numbers would have been much, much lower, and there would be far more people still languishing in prisons uh, despite their innocence. And looking at those who have been then incarcerated, there seems to be, I think it's no, shouldn't be a surprise to any of us, that the numbers of those persons are often people who are at a poverty level, who don't have the funds to get a good attorney to have all the investigation, along with those who are uh, of the wrong race, if we want to call it that. No, well, there's no, 
Yeah, well, there's no doubt about that. I think poverty is really the the, the critical factor here. Um, you know, whether you're black or brown or white or yellow, uh, you need the resources, uh, uh, either voluntary or paid, uh, to hire lawyers to do the very tough work uh, of digging up evidence and exonerating someone. Uh, and so unless unless you happen to be a very wealthy person in prison, uh, you really have to depend on some organizations. Uh, usually it's an innocence project. It can be some other uh, organization that's interested in criminal justice reform. Uh, but you need to depend on volunteers, people who are willing to work really hard for very little uh, with, with very long odds uh, to, uh, to get people uh, to, to be exonerated. So it really feels like that proverbial deck is stacked against a person, which then leads us to feel like, why Why do we come to that point? Why isn't there justice in the justice system? Well, I think there's two related issues. One is that uh, oftentimes uh, police investigators in particular come to a theory of what happened in a particular crime and who did it. Uh, and then uh, what is known as confirmation bias or tunnel vision kicks in. Uh, and uh, these investigators end up ignoring the facts and evidence that are inconsistent with their theory uh, and focusing on the facts that tend to support their theory. It's not it's not a, a an evil thing. Uh, I think it's something that we all suffer from to greater or lesser extent. But when it comes uh, to play in the in the criminal justice area and in investigating serious crimes, uh, the results can be really devastating, as I think the book talks about in in some detail. Uh, so that's part of the problem. And then on the other end of the of the spectrum, uh, on the appeal end, uh, it seems like the American justice system. Uh, is much more concerned with finality than with truth or innocence. So for that reason, uh, oftentimes just being able to prove that someone is in fact innocent does not give you legal grounds to vacate their conviction. Uh, you know, believe it or not, you have to show something beyond that. You have to show some defect in the trial or uh, defect in the appellate proceedings uh, in order to exonerate somebody, mere innocence, if you want to look at it as mere, is simply not enough in most jurisdictions. And so to do all that work of the unraveling and the digging takes, of course, time and resources. And that's um, where perhaps many who are incarcerated just feel like there's no option. Well, and, and indeed, many get discouraged well before uh, uh, they should or they they have to, uh, because it is it is sort of like beating your head against the wall for many of these people. Many of them have to write time and time again to various organizations, uh, and oftentimes they're either not receiving a response or receiving a negative response because these organizations are themselves overwhelmed and overworked. Uh, so, you know, it really is a systemic problem. Uh, 
Uh, and the only way to solve that problem is to vastly increase the resources that are available, uh, you know, first in terms of training the police officers and the detectives about the problem of confirmation bias and tunnel vision and to try to get them to recognize that this is a problem and that when they focus on an innocent person, uh, the result is that the guilty person goes free to to uh, victimize other people. So it is in everyone's interest, including the law enforcement machinery, to not have somebody wrongfully prosecuted or convicted. Um, and then it, it requires massive resources for public defenders and for uh, you know uh, those doing post-conviction work uh, to make sure that the system has worked. And, and the problem is that those of us who are involved in, in the criminal justice system at sort of the, the ground level, we don't have a very strong lobbying um, uh, voice uh, in either the state or federal government. Uh, you know, we're, we're way down the totem pole when it comes to how state resources or federal resources are going to be allocated. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, that's, that's just a, a reality of our system. Uh, and I think it's short-sighted because at the end of the day, uh, a lot of these jurisdictions will end up spending more on lawsuits uh, that uh, are brought because they didn't do things right to begin with uh, than they would have spent just getting the system correct. And and that piece of it in so many situations is the thing that I, I think can drive me feeling like I'm going crazy, that, that we don't look at it clearly enough to know to take the time and spend the time and resources up front rather than, in this case, all the lawsuits that can follow. Well, that's right. But, you know, it's a lot easier for for governments uh, to say, well, uh, you know, this, this lawsuit uh, forced us to pay this amount of money uh, and uh, we didn't do anything wrong, but, you know, we needed to, to settle this thing. Uh, as opposed to going to a state legislature or the federal government and saying, hey, you know, uh, we need X millions of dollars to make the system work because then they're competing against other priorities. And inevitably, these other priorities have greater constituencies, uh, you know, more powerful constituencies, and they went out. Uh, so. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that that we're ever going to get the funding we really need uh, to to make a real difference uh, with wrongful convictions. So at the risk of sounding too simplistic about this, but Dave, if you were able to just have a clean slate and build the system that is needed, can you tell us what that would be? You're going to give me all that power? Yes. <laughs> sure. You know uh, why I want to, let me say, the reason I'd like to give you that kind of power is because I feel your heart is compassionate, and the reason you're doing the work that you're doing started when you were uh, starting law school, and you saw the need for this. It, ha it has gone back a while, hasn't it? Um, well, you know, th there are various ideas that I've had. I don't know which of them are practical. You know, for example, could we somehow uh, get out of the mindset of the adversary system at the start of the case when things are being evaluated and have a more cooperative uh, 
system where prosecutors and criminal defense lawyers could sit down and talk about the um, the pros and cons, the the strengths and the weaknesses of the evidence in a particular case, uh, and try to come to some decision right at the outset about a whether the case is really worth prosecuting, uh, and b if it is, sort of what kind of result ought to be aimed for. You know, again, I don't know if that's really realistic, but you know, our adversary system is not. It's very good when you get into a trial uh, where both sides need to be, you know, advocating fiercely. It is not so good when what you're trying to do is to evaluate a case uh, and evaluate what should happen in a case. Uh, You know, if there was some way of having a more cooperative approach to that, uh, I think it would benefit everyone. Uh, So that's one idea. You know, another idea is to, as I said, train uh, police detectives and prosecutors, for that matter, and judges in the dangers of confirmation bias. You know, we do that in medical education by teaching doctors that they have to engage in a process called differential diagnosis, where they have to consider a range of possible diagnoses and rule those out before they reach a final diagnosis. Uh, Police detectives and prosecutors don't have to engage in any sort of similar process. You know, another uh, another thing that we might do is when the system does go wrong, uh, have a real inquiry, you know, the kind of inquiry that you have when there's a plane crash and the National Transportation Safety Board comes in and does a soup to nuts investigation of what happened, why it happened, and most importantly, how it might be prevented in the future. That, to my knowledge, is virtually never done when an exoneration occurs. You know, somebody may serve 30 or 40 years in prison. They're exonerated, and the prosecutors announce, see, the system has worked. Uh, He's gotten out. Well, no, the system hasn't worked. It failed from the beginning. Uh, It maybe didn't do as much damage as it could have done, but the system didn't work, and what we really should be looking at is, why it didn't work, and what are the reasons, and how can we prevent that in the future? So there's three suggestions if you want to put me in charge, Um, and uh, I'm not sure anyone's going to be uh, offering me the job anytime in the future. Well, that is sad and and a loss because, uh, you know, maybe finding a piece of each of these would bring us to a place of really – creating a, a better world for us, a, 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 a what, a better society for all where the criminal, and there are those that deserve to be incarcerated, that does happen. But those that shouldn't be, that uh, thinking of, you know, 10 years, 30 years lost, languishing in a, in a prison when you should not be there, uh, there's no way to um, compensate a person for that lost life. Well, and and indeed, as I mentioned earlier, it means that the actual perpetrator has gotten away with it and is still out there free to victimize other people. So the reality, Kate, is that everybody should have the same interest in improving the criminal justice system, uh, in making it work better, in eliminating wrongful convictions and wrongful prosecutions. 
Uh, and unfortunately, you know, it seems to become a, a political football as opposed to uh, a, a rational discussion uh, that we all should be having with each other. Right. Do you think then that, well, certainly I think these innocence projects are an incredible entity. I didn't realize that these actually existed, so it's wonderful that they exist. Can we consider something like that as a grassroots movement to help to bring the change that's needed? Well, certainly it's it's been an important development, but if you want to talk grassroots, I think what really needs to happen, and, and this has happened in various places, is we need for voters to start looking at the candidates at the local levels a lot more seriously. Because the reality is that the criminal justice system, for the most part, works at the very most local levels, you know, in your counties, in your cities. Uh, that's where it works. And so, you know, people don't really understand or pay attention to things like, you know, who's running for DA. What are their policies? What are their backgrounds? Uh, who is running for the city council or the county alderman? Uh, what are their priorities? Uh, who's running for sheriff? And, and what have they done? And what are their policies? You know, that's where change has to start because people need to start understanding that there are real differences. And when reformist district attorneys, for example, uh, which has happened in various places in Chicago and in Philadelphia and in Boston and in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. In all of those large cities, you have prosecutors who have gotten into uh, you know, positions of power where they actually are looking at the system and saying, how can we change this to make it fairer and more efficient uh, and more accurate? Uh, and and law enforcement in those jurisdictions is pushing back because they don't like those reforms. Uh, you know, and I, I think that's short-sighted. Uh, I think, it you know, it becomes a political football when it shouldn't be. But that's what grassroots really needs to do. So uh, I think in Seattle you probably have a very good local prosecutor. At least that's what my uh, lawyer friends in Seattle have told me. Uh, I know that uh, you've had some very fine U.S. attorneys in Seattle over the years. Uh, and, uh, you know, to the extent that, that people want to make change, you know, we need to be electing people at the local level, whether they're county commissioners, whether they're city, uh, city aldermen, uh, whether they're district attorneys or sheriffs. Those people need to be elected who have policies that will improve the criminal justice system, not just keep the status quo. Well, that certainly is good direction and really reminds us that, yes, when it comes to time of voting for these people, that we do due diligence to reading all the voter pamphlets uh, and not skim over them. I'm guilty that sometimes it feels like, oh, this is really challenging to read, but that we have to in order exactly. to, right? We have to do it. Exactly. It's actually at least as important, if not more important, than reading the literature on who's running for Senate. Okay, we're underscoring that one. And wrapped up into this, you were saying, looking at what would be a a more ideal system where the training of the prosecutors, the judges, and the police comes into play. And we're going through, 
such a challenging time in our country around police. And and I think it's so tough because it, it bounces back and forth and we're not finding or looking at a good solution and getting that training. Doesn't it seem that if we had really good training that we wouldn't be dealing with all the controversy and the huge challenges that we've faced over the decades, over the century? Well, you know, it would certainly help. Uh, and I think, you know, part of the problem is is a language problem. You know, when when people start talking about defunding the police, uh, that really uh, was a, a misdescription of what I think most people wanted. I don't think most people wanted there to be no police forces. What they wanted was for the police uh, resources to be directed not just at you know, the, the street policing, but also at things like uh, how do you de-escalate situations where people are suffering from mental health issues? Uh, you know, how can we how can we uh, uh, get away from this sort of siege mentality uh, that uh, some police uh, departments seem to have in policing their local cities and get more uh, more focused on cooperative ventures uh, with the community and, and how the community and the police can support each other. So, you know, I, th- I think it's unfortunate that, you know, defund the police became a, a sort of slogan. Uh, and I think it was it was misdirected uh, and misused. Uh, and what we're really talking about is reallocating resources, not defunding the police. Rightly so. I feel that's much of what did go on. And somehow the clarification of it, even though many of us were feeling that, that language didn't come forward. And there still is that kind of antagonistic statement that will be defund the police. Although I think that that's being tempered and we're seeing changes gratefully here in Seattle of, you know, the other resources coming into play, but it's really difficult to salvage, to undo the damage. No, absolutely. And, you know, look, uh, our society is incredibly divided. Uh, You know, I thought it was bad during the Vietnam War. I think it's uh, much, much worse now than it ever was then. Uh, I think that, you know, we're all in our silos. I think that uh, there is no Walter Cronkite uh, who can talk to all Americans. Uh, Everybody is is watching their own uh, viewpoints uh, repeated over and over. Uh, and and it's difficult. Uh, and so, you know, once something gets labeled, uh, whatever it's labeled, it's very difficult to change that because people are in an echo chamber uh, and, and they don't really hear or listen to other points of view. Uh, and, and, you know, hopefully if, if people read the book uh, with an open mind and, and consider the stories in the book, because I tried to write the book in a way that is not academic. It's certainly not a I'm a great lawyer book. Uh, it's a book about the system and how the system fails and what happens to individual citizens when that system fails. Uh, and, and it should be, I hope, a real wake-up call to anyone who reads it, whatever their political viewpoint. Uh, the reality is that, that what's going on right now really needs to, to change. Uh, and and I'm really hoping that that those who read the book, and I hope it's a it's a lot of people who read it, and not just people who are interested in 
reforming the justice system, but people who think the justice system is just fine. Yeah. I think everybody uh, who cares about the justice system on either side uh, should really be reading this book, thinking about it, and then reassessing you know, exactly what we need to do to make it a better system. And that's what it really takes for us as a people, as a country, to for the unification is to have all sides look at this, read the stories, the real life uh, nitty gritty stories that you share from your years of experience as an attorney. And, and then we can perhaps have civil discussions about it. And that's my hope. That's certainly the way I wrote the book. I, I, I don't think I wrote the book in a way that is designed to antagonize anybody uh, or, uh, you know, force people to take sides. I, I think that, uh, you know, I recognize in the book that most of these situations do not involve, uh, you know, corruption or police trying to frame an innocent person. Uh, it, it, it stems from the fact that it's human beings who are operating the system, uh, and so they suffer from the same uh, uh, failings that all of us suffer from. It's just that when those failings are brought into play in the criminal justice system, the consequences can be so much greater. Yes. We're talking about lives, each human life, and, and uh, whether it gets a chance to really do the work that it's to do in this world. But Indeed. For, with you, um, David Rudolph, we are so fortunate that uh, you have this experience. And as I said earlier on, I, I feel you have this compassionate heart that really wants to see the good things and the right things happen in our world. And by sharing the stories in American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System, I feel that you're giving us this opportunity to, to have a good insight and, as I said, to maybe have us have conversations with each other. So the book, of course, readily available or ask for it at your favorite book source, right? Absolutely. Available at uh, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble uh, and local bookstores and, and certainly uh, online from HarperCollins. And for people to get to know more about you and follow up on some of this, you have a website. I do. It's it's uh, davidsrudolph.com, uh, and it uh, it has some information about sort of my journey uh, over the decades, uh, information about wrongful conviction cases that I've been involved in. Uh, we have a uh, my wife and I have a podcast called Abuse of Power, which is on Audible. Uh, that people can subscribe to and listen. Uh, and, of course, the book is, is uh, also uh, featured on the, on the uh, website. So hopefully people will, uh, will take a few minutes and, and look at all that and, uh, and decide to, uh, to educate themselves a little bit more about uh, the criminal justice system. Absolutely agree, David. Yes, this is what we need, the education. And I feel that this is a balanced way for us to become that much more informed. So thank you for your great dedication and work, and thank you for taking time with us this morning. Well, th thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it greatly. You're so welcome.